0: Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I am interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is Glenn Heemstra. Glenn has spent the last 40 years working as a futurist, and he's been a previous guest of this show. In our conversation, Glenn paints a picture of what he believes life will be like in 2073 with an emphasis on the continued growth of cities, climate change, the future of a global middle class, and the further development of a space economy. Glenn also discusses a handful of things we're doing today that the people of 2073 will look back at in disbelief. Glenn, welcome to 12 Geniuses. With these Futures Friday conversations, I'm hoping we can spark the imagination of the audience around what's possible in the future. And so I'm going to just ask you if you can paint a picture for what life will be like in the year 2073. Number one, there is a very strong and
1: continuing trend of people moving into larger and larger cities. So I think we can assume in 2073 that the vast majority, and by that I mean 70 or 80 percent or more of the population on planet Earth will live in large cities. There are tremendous economic advantages to being in cities. There are actually great environmental advantages to being in cities. So that, I think that would be a good thing if most of the world's population collects in cities because you you can be more environmentally efficient, you could be more transportation efficient, and so on, then scattered out across rural areas. So that's an acceleration of what exists today. I think lots and lots of Seoul, Korea's with 25 million people. Number two, by 50 years, to the extent we use individualized transportation, my assumption is that it will all be electric. There might be a small percentage which is hydrogen-based, and maybe a tiny percentage which is still fossil fuel base for which we can't come up with any other way to operate whatever the system might be without fossil fuels, but that would be such a tiny amount that it won't be noticeable. I should maybe perhaps back up one step and say, when you talk about 50 years, it's, it's likely that what exists in 2073 will depend as much on what we do between now and then as it does on what's happened up till now. There are many, many forces in place, but there are many things that are going to, that, that would be the result of decisions that we make or technological developments that we invent and so on over the next 50 years. One of the decisions that, that we'll make has to do with always, with how the economy works for everyone. And so the question always is, does the economy bifurcate into lots and lots of relatively poor people and a few very wealthy people? Or do you have a growing global, middle class, and that tension is always, has always been there for thousands of years. And we've had various answers to that. What energy abundance would do, what living in cities does, what electrified transportation does, all of those things can combine to create a more robust economy for more people. And so, theoretically, in terms of a hopeful future, would have less of a wealth gap between the top and the bottom and a much larger share of the people in the middle with larger incomes, which is not what's happening right now. So, th- so that's there. How much will we be augmented by artificial intelligence? And that's, to me, probably the question of the moment for those who are interested in, in the future because of the, the publicity around chat GPT. We will have more intelligent machines. We'll have more intelligence available to us in whatever form that might be. It might be speaking to screens it might be speaking to watches it might be implanted chips it might be there might be all kinds of of, of ways in which we access global intelligence and that clearly is going to be a feature of uh, 50 years from now there is always debate about whether that then starts to replace us replace human beings there is some there are some in the in the ai world and you i'm sure you've seen these stories over the last particularly two weeks who are concerned that AI will get so smart and it will kind of go Skynet on us, that, that it doesn't really like humans, need humans, and that we're really more of a pest on the planet and therefore would just as soon get rid of us. I think that's relatively unlikely. I suppose we won't know in 2073 if that happened, but I think that's relatively unlikely, but the augmentation of human capacity, whether that's our physical labor or whether that's our mental labor through machines, Now, intelligent machines just continues. That's a continuing theme since the Industrial Revolution. So that will be
0: true. Many of these big, big megacities are on the coasts and climate is going to affect those cities. So would you expect that people would move to cities inland or would there be some things that are mitigating climate, sea rise and that sort of thing?
1: The forecast of how much sea level rises in fifty years vary quite widely, from you know as little as a foot or two to uh, as much as a meter or two or three meters. And and Miami is a a somewhat unique case in that it's hard for Miami to retreat inland over over a fifty year period. If I was, and I think that this will happen in in a lot of, of coastal cities, as development occurs, it will occur more and more inland. You go to New York and you migrate to the northern end of Manhattan, which is higher, and you go to New Jersey and you migrate away from the shore a couple of miles inland. It only takes two or three or four miles in most cases to get enough protection from storm surges and enough of higher elevation. But that, that project, if we were smart, which we aren't necessarily until the emergency is really upon us, We would be engaged now in a very conscious effort to sort of retreat by a mile or two or three from uh, shoreline cities. But of course, what we do right now still is to build housing and so on right on the shoreline because people want to have views and uh, and they want to be on the beach and so on. I still think that I'm an exception, I suppose, to some other futurists and that I think the jury is still out in terms of how much sea level really comes up. It will come up. Some storm surges will be significant. Some of that retreat will be underway in in 50 years. I don't think that we will do much in advance until, you know, a shoreline in Florida city is wiped out. And then instead of rebuilding it right there 50 years from now, we will say, okay, we give up, let's, let's move inland uh, a a couple of miles if that's feasible in that particular uh, location.
0: If we can allow people to, all people to get access to artificial intelligence and not make it something that is just for the wealthy. That to, seems to indicate that we could have this global middle class as you're describing. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, I do. I don't have the numbers right, right in front of me, but the, the growth of the middle class globally, and, and you can think primarily Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and really all, all of Asia, India, you know, has, has been very dramatic since 1980, 1990. Africa lags, but Africa is, is growing a middle class. So we, we have about 8 billion people today. We have over 8 billion smartphones in the world Now that's not everybody has one because some people have two or three, but virtually everybody, it's like 90% of the world's population has some, some kind of access to mobile telephone, smartphone technology, and if, even if they're sharing it among a few people. And by 2073, you just have to assume that everybody has access to this. And that device is capable of accessing whatever exists as AI at that point. And it's hard to imagine, really. It is, to me, hard to imagine a scenario where that is walled off financially and not made available to everybody. Because there's always going to be somebody who comes up with something newer, better, cheaper, faster. And so my assumption is that everybody will have sufficient access to that to be able to participate economically in, in the world unless, unless we actively prevent it. So I think a world of abundance is just as likely as, as a world of scarcity, perhaps more so.
0: You had mentioned space and governance. What are your thoughts on those two topics?
1: Governance to me, the, the pathways between now and 2073, there are kind of three major pathways that, that we might follow. Uh, and then I'll share which one I, I think that is most likely to emerge or, and I guess probably better to say reemerge. One one pathway is we just kind of continue the, the national government paradigms that have existed since 1900 or, or so. And with the kind of, let's call it rudimentary UN-based global cooperate, co- cooperative governance projects not really governance per se, but governments coming together to do things somewhat cooperatively. There is a trend in the world right now, and this is quite clear, it has been going on for about 15 years or so. And, you know, it's at, at, a, at a fever pitch here in the U.S. And, and, and around the world, and that is toward a sort of a, a reigniting of ultra-nationalism. And people, you know, and it, it could be captured in you know, a slogan on a hat, it could be captured in withdrawing from the, you know, the European Union, there are various ways in which this sort of manifests itself. And and the mantra is basically enough of this whole world stuff. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's isolate to the extent we can ourselves from the world. In the U.S., we might call it, let's bring all of our manufacturing back and let's and be, just become more hyper You can see it in Russia. You can see it in, in other places. And that's clearly a phenomenon that's that's been going on for some time. My my opinion is that that's a negative phenomenon, and is is a threat to a positive future for most of the people on the planet. And so the third the third possibility is that we sort of reassert it's a it was a, a kind of a philosophical shift that happened in the 1980s, especially, but it had begun a little bit earlier. But it's particularly in the 1980s, and that was. I belief that that a if not a creation of global governance, then a sort of mental shift that would happen a a mind shift, if you will in which people would begin to consider themselves part of a, a global society in addition to being part of a national and and local community and the trend right now is to push back against that but i think that that is likely to reemerge because the problems that we face primarily climate change and to the and to some extent the prevention of war just require global responses and so i think we're sort of in my opinion is that we are and hope is that we're in this kind of hiccup period and and we'll play around in this sort of hyper-nationalistic world again we'll discover it has more negative outcomes than positive and and a, a a kind of a sense of global citizenship will re, reassert itself. I just years ago I, I interviewed a, an author named Peter Russell. He had he had written a book. Let me hold it up. It was called The Global Brain. This is actually he actually wrote the original version of this book in 1983. And this is this is a, a more recent edition, the, the the most recent edition reprinted in 2018. Although the edition is from 2007. And Peter Russell was is a British, although he lives in California now, a based physicist, science writer. And he, and he kind of looked at evolutionary history and said, when when systems reach a sufficient level of complexity, they, they tend to transition to a, a higher level of complexity and a higher level of function, a higher level of intelligence, if, if you will. And his thesis in 1983 was... Uh, electronic communication systems as they existed then, which are very rudimentary compared to what we have now, we're in the process, along with airplane travel, of linking up everybody in the world in a way that had never existed before. And that if you think of human beings, each human being as equivalent of a neuron in a brain, that we're reaching a sufficient level of complexity in terms of the number of human neurons on, on the planet now all connected via electronic communication and travel. That, that we could leap to a higher level of consciousness. That's a little bit esoteric, of course. But I, in terms of, of governance, his the case he made was that that's necessary for us to achieve a kind of global society. We have to make a... It's not so much creating a new government structure as it is to making a mental shift in how we see ourselves as part of a whole community of human beings on, on planet Earth. Uh, and then perhaps planet Earth as, as part of a a larger solar system society and and so on. And the next 50 years, I think will be quite impactful in terms of of whether we make that shift, one could argue perhaps that if we don't make that shift, we don't get through the next 50 years or we're in a world of hurt 50 years from now and just trying to dig ourselves out of crisis after crisis,
0: after crisis. I think most people would be surprised that this idea of national Gover- governance and countries is really only 100 120 years old and you know when i think about germany that's an old country with interesting culture but it didn't become unified until the late 19th century and people scratch their heads but it's all of our lifetime so it's always been that way for many of us but it's really this this idea of national governance and governments is pretty new. And it does make sense that we're in a, in a point where we go more global because the problems that we have, the big problems, are global problems.
1: It's easy to overestimate how long things have lasted and, and miss what you just said, which is that nation states have only been around for, you know, in their current form. Sure, the United States has been here since, you know, 1780 or whenever the Revolutionary War was over. But, you know, that was 13 states at the time, and it wasn't anything like, like it is now. But, but And even that's only, you know, 250 years, 280 years. It's a, it's, it's a blink of an eye. Uh, I'm reading a book I, I mentioned to before we started recording, The Wild New World, which was about the, the history of animals, basically, in North America. But the, the author visits a place called Chaco, Chaco Canyon down in, down in the Southwest, which was a city, a very large city, 75,000 people, something like that, that existed for 500 years and then and was gone before the Europeans came to America. And so, and so that's a city that none of us know anything about that existed longer than nation states. And so things, things that appear to us to be quite permanent and to have been the way things have always been are not that's not the way things have always been which obviously the flip side is equally true then the way things are today are not necessarily the way things will always be and so this enhanced human consciousness global consciousness and and again it's not about government structures it's about seeing ourselves as you said as, as a part of a whole rather than as individuals always struggling against other individuals and then there that, that will also be part of our future of course some competition is good, we will always be in some way, in some ways separate from, from others, but overcoming that or dealing with that or living in a system that accommodates for that, I think is is what's necessary.
0: You have really shifted and advanced my thinking on on the topic of space, so let's go there
1: this This is a,
0: a really interesting
1: uh, next few months in uh, space exploration. I should say beyond space exploration to space settlement or becoming a what is best phrased a space-faring civilization. In the next few weeks, a new rocket company called Relativity Space is going to attempt its first orbital launch of a 3D printed rocket. I don't know how much they actually bolt together, but most of the rocket pieces, including the engine and the, and the, the rocket body, they're gonna launch from, from Cape Canaveral or, or Kennedy Space Center, and we'll see whether they're, they're successful. But they could be a whole new player in launch to low Earth orbit. So that's happening. SpaceX is about to test this giant uh, rocket, and I can't remember the, what the the name they call it right now. But the, the really large one that's much larger than anything that's ever flown before. And that is critical both to getting to the Moon, because it's part of the NASA program for the Moon missions that are upcoming, but also, of course, to extending our presence to another planet, namely Mars. and that is supposed to launch here in March, so we'll we'll see some news. And then Blue Origin is going to start launching its first commercial rockets this spring, and so a whole lot of activity. It's literally almost a launch of mm-hmm. something into space every day, and particularly it probably is every day if you if you look at what's happening in China, and India, and other other countries that are in the in the launch business. So we're, we're at this very early stage now of sort of breaking out of the confines of planet Earth. And I think that it, it changes things in, in, in a couple of really fundamental ways. Number one, we think of Earth as a, as a very finite physical system. And those in the environmental community will often say, well, we live on this finite planet. And, and we're using up the resources too fast, or we're despoiling spoiling the Earth too quickly, both of which are true. But in my opinion, they kind of overlook the fact that we live in a rather infinite universe and a, a pretty infinite solar system, as, as a matter of fact. And while it's expensive and not easy, or has been traditionally expensive and not easy to get to resources in space, space is full of resources. From, from water to minerals of all kinds, uh, to hydrogen, to just every, everything that everything that makes up material life on planet Earth exists elsewhere in the solar system. We just haven't ever thought of ourselves as, we haven't ever thought of that as being accessible to us. So imagine a future 50 years from now in which that is pretty easily accessible. Maybe we've developed some kind of nuclear pulse rocket technology, which is under development and other forms of enhanced propulsion systems. We might still use chemical rockets to get into low Earth orbit because it's still a very efficient way to get out of the gravity well of Earth. But once you're in low Earth orbit, then you could assemble spacecraft or put together craft that are already there that have, say, a nuclear pulse engine, and you can get to Mars in a matter of a few weeks. And from there, you can go other places. And the distances are vast, and the space is a hostile environment, and there's all kinds of of challenges of over overcoming it, but it is quite feasible now to think of a world in which tens of thousands of, or a a future in which tens of thousands and perhaps even by, probably tens of thousands of people by 2073, eventually hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of people living and working in low earth orbit between here and the moon, on the moon, on Mars, on on certain moons of, of other planets and so on it's very science fictiony and one you know you one come come with all kinds of apparently legitimate arguments for why why would we want to do that the planet is beautiful why would you want to go live in a place that doesn't have waterfalls and and so on all of that is all of that is true but i think that the enhancement of the human experiment and by human experiment i mean kind of a, a self-aware intelligent species living in this solar system expanding into the solar system is part of the potential destiny of of being our species on on this planet. So, and and I, I, you know, my, my take has always been, why wouldn't you want to do that if you're capable of doing it? It's obviously the next 50 years are perhaps the critical 50 years in answering the question, can we establish a robust enough economy with a preserved enough environment on planet Earth that these things are fe- feasible? Because planet Earth for a very long period of time, maybe forever, but certainly for a very long period of time, will be the base from which everything must come or, or the where everything starts at least. And so you have to, you know, the test is can we, Begin to mitigate for climate change and actually reverse what's going on in, in terms of global warming. By so that by 50 years from now, we can say the trend now is to is away from global warming. We may not be actually cooling the planet, but at least we won't be warming it any any further. And and have we established a robust enough economy that's sustainable enough that we can support all all of these space adventures or or ventures? And then, can you build a self-sustaining economy in space? Which I think there are there are lots of reasons to think that you can. There's actually a lot of theoretical work going on in universities and so on uh, around doing that. And we won't be for everybody. You know, assume that five percent or ten percent uh, of people on Earth say, you know, I think I'd like to be part of a space economy. Well, that's that's many millions of people who would say, yeah, I'd like to do that. Even 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 if it's only two or three percent of of the of the world's population say, yeah, I think I'd like to go off world for a while. for for the rest of my life it's it's a very large number of people if if only a small percentage of the planet want to do that so you have to develop the technological capability you have to develop you have to preserve the environment in such a way that 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 the earth environment in such a way that it's feasible and you have to have a robust enough
0: economy that is feasible if you do those three things why wouldn't we do that it sounds so science fiction and i think back to the 15th century when columbus sailed and that you know most Europeans at the time would have said, no way, count me out, but they did it. They found enough people. I think about Shackleton going to the South Pole and he found people who wanted to do that. And, you know, they're we're explorers. Humans are explorers. And I, I think that what you just described is really, really exciting. Whether I would want to go or my kids would want to go, I, I don't know, but absolutely people are going to want to do that if we can establish the capabilities to do it. Yeah. Go, go go hang out at, at some space
1: conferences where there are a lot of university students, which I've done a few times. And you'd be amazed at how many of them just, you know, they're they're hoping, hoping that in their lifetimes, these things will happen so they can all be a part of it and, and get out there and be doing these things. And and it's kind of beyond exploring. I, I you know, I had this, this space mentor who I might have mentioned to you in, in the past and he was the futurist mentor who kind of got me into the whole field of being a futurist. And he was director of program planning for Apollo at the Rockwell company. They're, they're part of that program. And uh, he was the one who said, look, the, the early, early rocket projects, Mercury, Gemini, uh, you know, Apollo to the moon, those are all about explorations, being the explorers, being the first to, to go out. And, but, and he believed that the space shuttle would be more like the covered wagons. That brought lots (laughs) and lots of people into space. Now, it turned out he was wrong about that because the shuttle was not nearly as reliable. And when the shuttle was conceived, the idea was that it could be launched several times a week. It would actually operate virtually like an airplane. You'd fly a bunch of people up, you'd come back down and land, take a day or two to refurb, and then you'd go back up again. Didn't turn out to be feasible to do that. The the SpaceX rocket ship now, the the big one, their idea, and Ms. Shotwell, Shotwell, who is the head of SpaceX, in a talk just a week or two ago, said that their goal is called starship. Their goal with starship is to get to basically hundreds of launches per week of starship, and Starship can launch two, three hundred people at a time into space once you configure it in the right way, and there's some place for them to go. And she said we want to we want to develop enough of them and make them reusable quickly enough and turn so you could turn them around fast enough that you could actually be doing hundreds of launches per week. And and that then really does become the kind of the, the covered wagon or the, the early transatlantic steamers or the early transatlantic air, airplanes, you know, finally taking this from the explorers who are doing the first missions to you know, almost, and actually really eventually the general public who can, can go into space and, and go live and work somewhere else for a while. And so
0: what will the humans of 2073 look back at the humans of today and just shake their heads at it and say, what were they thinking? You know, <laughs> kind of like the way we think about smoking on airplanes back in the 70s. Like, we couldn't imagine doing that now. I- I'm just curious if you have some thoughts on that. Woody Allen made a movie once called Sleeper.
1: It was set probably around 2073, somewhere in that. Time period, and, and he does that. He he gets a big laugh in the movie about people sitting around saying those those people back in the nineteen eighties they were so crazy they thought smoking was bad for you, and they thought you couldn't eat steaks and they thought you know that was bad for you. And they're all smoking and eating steaks and saying it. See so now now we know that it was good for you. I, I think this what we talked about before in governance will be, will be a primary one: the idea that we should all separate ourselves into ultra nationalist separated. States, even even now regions. The Washington Post did an article this, this past Sunday, just yesterday, actually, on let's basically call them ultra nationalists moving to, to Idaho, which has always been a kind of a, me- a mega, a mecca for people who are ultra nationalists, particularly the last 25 years or so. I grew up in Idaho and it wasn't that way when I was growing up there. But I, I think they'll look back on that and say, you know, that was, that really wasn't, wasn't too smart. I, I think we'll look back and, and say, basically, Finding fossil fuels and doing nothing with it except lighting it on fire. We we won't understand. People in 2073 won't understand why we were continuing to do that even at an accelerated pace, right now in 2023, because they will see, as we see now, that, that we have al- we have better alternatives, cheaper alternatives, and there's no need to do it. And and it's bad, obviously it's, it's bad for for the climate. So they'll look back at that and say, why did they wait so long? Why did they wait for things to get as bad as they got before they really kind of went into emergency mode? I think that they'll look back at separation along racial lines and be surprised that we were still as separated as we were, despite having an African-American president and so on. Uh, in 2023, they'll be surprised at how separated we were. Although that, that's, that's kind of a, a hope as much as it is certainly a a forecast. I read last week, I did not, I haven't seen actually a clip of this, but what I read was that President Barack Obama said in an interview a week or two ago that he now thinks he was elected a little too early because the backlash that he created has kind of actually recreated a separation that was in a more accelerated process of being overcome. But I hopefully that that's just a spasm in time, and we'll we'll come back to a world in which the goal is to you know for it's a very old fashioned word, but to to live in an in an integrated society where we all see ourselves as part of the same society, and the goal is to live together rather than to live next to each other separately and so people will look back and say, gosh they were I can't believe they were still." behaving in some of those ways that were in some ways kind of going back to Jim Crow. You could come up with health things that we do that, that are probably going to be seen as silly in, in 50 years. Education is kind of an interesting one in terms of that. There's this weird backlash going on against higher education right now, while simultaneously we're becoming more educated. Uh, I would be curious to know, I, I don't know that I have a forecast so much, but I'd be curious to know in 50 years how, how we, how we view education and and how it occurs.
0: Glenn, I could talk to you for hours and hours. This is phenomenal. I really appreciate your time. Thanks f- thanks for being a guest again. And You're welcome. Thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 geniuses. We will return next week when I interview futurist Gert Leonhard, who will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.